Daniel chapter 9. If you were here two weeks ago, we started the chapter, and we read a a heartfelt, passionate prayer from Daniel. The first 19 verses are Daniel pouring out his heart for, before God in repentance, not only for his sin, but for the sin of his people. And as he is just weighed down with the people's iniquities and their wickedness and their disobedience, he goes before God and says, oh, please forgive us. Please heal us, God. And he boldly asked for restoration, for God to visit his people and to restore them to their land. And so while we separated the text into different messages, this is just a continuation of what Daniel prayed. And so what we are going to see today is a mysterious answer to a powerful prayer. A mysterious answer to a powerful prayer. Let's let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come now to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. (laughs) This section in Daniel, especially verses 24 through 27, are generally agreed upon by most scholars of Daniel to be the hardest verses in the book. I thought about cheating and skipping them and moving on to something else, but my conscience wouldn't let me do it. I want us to tackle them together do our best to understand what they mean and see what God has for our life. But there's, I want to give you kind of a, 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 a word of warning at the beginning or a disclaimer. Um, when we study Scripture, we've said this a couple of times now throughout Daniel, but we need to remember that not all Scripture is equally clear to us. God desires for us to study His Word and to understand it and apply it to our life. But there are passages such as this one that are not 
equally clear as like, say, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We all, all can get that. But when we start reading about weeks and moats and, and uh, abominations and princes, and we're not sure exactly what he's seeing in this vision, but we know it's a little bit uh, confusing. And so we need to remember to interpret the unclear things in light of what is clear in Scripture. And one of the things that has been clear thus far in Daniel is that his purpose for writing is to give people hope by reassuring them that the faithful, covenant-keeping God desires to bring in his everlasting kingdom and that he will conquer and reign. So whatever these verses mean, that is the overarching theme of Daniel that we need to keep in mind as we walk through them. Secondly, the second disclaimer I want to give is that, how do I, how do I put this? In, in Scripture, there are hills to die on. There are doctrinal beliefs and teachings in Scripture that as Christians, we should never budge. There are things that we should be even willing to die for. The fact that Jesus is God is one of those doctrines. The fact that God is three in one is one of those doctrines. The fact that God created everything is one of those doctrines. The the, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, that salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, that, that Jesus is coming again. Those are doctrines that as Christians we should all be able to agree on and are worth fighting for. Those are, I call them the, let's, let's step out behind the church and talk about this kind of doctrines. Like, they're, they're seriously ones that if you don't hold to them, you're not a Christian. They're that important. But then there are teachings in Scripture which are still important, but that good, well-meaning, Jesus-loving Christians disagree on. Um, a number of them may be, uh, for example, maybe the, the spiritual gifts, uh, what ones are in existence today and how they're manifested. Some of our charismatic brothers and sisters may have different viewpoints on those than, than what I would. But, but these aren't, f- let's fight over them doctrines. Uh, another one of them, and we're gonna, this is the one we're going to walk into today, is over end times. I believe that we should study the scriptures and as best we can arrive at conclusions and and we'll have a friendly chat. Even if we disagree, we'll we'll explain our our point of view and where we arrived at that. And if I turn to this passage and this passage, it seems to confirm this point of view from this passage. That's fine. But let's let's not come to blows over them. Let's not stop talking to each other because we disagree on them. Let's not unfriend each other on Facebook or whatever it might be. It's okay to arrive at a conclusion. After studying this, I, I think I know what I, I, I believe about this passage. Emphasis on I think. But if at the end of the day you think, I see that differently, Pastor, that's okay. We can still be friends. That's all right. But there are doctrines in Scripture that, that we must hold dearly to. And then some of these other ones that are more gray areas, not as clear It's okay to agree to disagree. I believe after studying this text, just to give a a two-sentence summary, that this is referring to the coming of Christ, the completion of his sacrificial work, and the destruction of Jerusalem that followed shortly after his rejection and death. 
And so as we walk through this, you'll see where there's room for disagreement as we walk through these verses. But the first thing I want us to see is that as Daniel prayed this powerful prayer, he received a divine answer. He received a divine answer. We see that in verses 20 through 23. Daniel is praying, and I love this. We could spend the rest of the morning just on these verses without getting into the tricky ones. He says, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, while he was still in the middle of his prayer, he says, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen earlier, came to me in swift flight. Remember, we met Gabriel. He's an angelic messenger, and he has already appeared to Daniel once. Remember, he's the same angel that's going to appear to Mary and to Joseph to tell them about about Jesus. This Gabriel comes and brings an answer to Daniel's prayer. Notice that he said that it was at the time, end of verse 21, at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, that would just be something we could read right over and, and skip right past, but I think it's important that Daniel mentioned that. You see, Daniel was separated from Jerusalem. The temple has been destroyed. There is no temple sacrificial system going on right now in Daniel's life because the temple is not in existence. Yet Daniel is still tuned in to the fact that if I were home, if things were the way they should be, I'd be worshiping right now. I'd be at the temple and sacrifices would be all being offered to God right now. Daniel was keyed in to the spiritual realities of his relationship with God. You see, in this time of year, it's, it's so easy for us to get busy. I mean, I, we could take a show of hands. Some of you had multiple Thanksgivings this week. Some of them you had maybe multiple ones in the same day, driving one grandparent here. Oh, quick, we got to load up the kids and go to the next one. And then, you know, it's starting, right? We're going to have dinner theater six nights here at the church. I mean, if you're involved in that, your life's going to be crazy. You got dress rehearsals this week. But then for the rest of you, you've got other band concerts to go to, end of the you know, office Christmas parties, and then uh, multiple Christmases. You got to buy gifts. If you didn't get crazy on Black Friday, and this, this time of year can be frantic, and it can be so easy to get out of touch with God, to, to miss that, that connection that you and I desperately need each and every day, that quiet time with, that, with the Lord, our communion with Him, and I love that Daniel was so tuned into the Lord, he's like looking at his clock, right now, if we were home We'd be worshiping at sacrifice time. Don't let the busyness of this season crowd out your connection with God. Take time, find time to get alone, get quiet. Hide in the closet if you have to. Hide from the kids. Whatever you have to do to maintain that closeness with God. The other thing I noticed about this answer to his prayer is that look at what Gabriel says in verse 23. He says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I love this. Gabriel came still in the middle of the prayer, according to verse 20, while I was speaking and praying. 
But at the very first moment he began to pray, God heard and gave his answer. God says, Gabriel, my servant Daniel's praying. I want you to go tell him. I want you to go let him know that I have heard his prayers. But Daniel was continuing to pray during that time. Like, I don't know how fast angels, I don't know if they have a speed limit, uh, if, they, if it takes him a little while. I don't know where exactly he had to come from. He may have had a long journey. It took him a while. So Daniel is continuing to pray while Gabriel's getting everything around and getting in the car to come visit Daniel. And, and so Daniel continues to pour his heart out before God, even though an answer has already been sent from heaven. You know, you and I, sometimes we come before the Lord. Maybe I'm the only one here, but there are times when I get frustrated that it doesn't seem like God hears. It doesn't seem like the answer's coming. Know that our prayers reach the ears of God. And, and he gives answers to those prayers. It might not be when we want them. It might not be the way we want them. His, prayer may, his answer may be wait, but know that the ears of heaven are hearing you today. Most certainly there are things that can hinder our prayers, most notably sin, unconfessed sin in our heart. But when we come before God in a humble spirit like Daniel has and cry out to God, he listens. He listens. And God says to Gabriel, go. I want you to give Daniel my answer because I have heard. Even before he finished praying, God answered his prayer. We see next a mysterious answer. And I want to just throw up, here's a kind of a general overview of what we're going to see in the next few verses. That is, Gabriel comes to Daniel and shares with him a vision of the future There are several things that are going to happen. In verse 25, we're going to see the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 26, we're going to hear him talk about the coming and death, the coming and death of the Messiah. In verse 27, we're going to see the coming ruler and his defeat. But this mysterious answer has confounded many, many Bible scholars who are far more intelligent than I am. I have friends who see this differently than I do. There are many good Bible scholars and teachers who disagree over these verses. So I'm going to let you know where I've landed, and if you want to spar about it later on over coffee, that's fine. We can do that. I want to read to you the words of Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite pastors, because I think they capture where my heart's at. He says this. He said this when he was preaching through the passage. In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening. And as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about now to unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. So that's what we're going for this morning. As we read these verses, he tells us in verse 24, he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. Again, you can, even if you have study Bibles, you're going to see big, gigantic notes in your Bibles over these verses because commentators will ask, what is he talking about 70 weeks? Most agree that it's not literal 77-day weeks. That would mean uh, that about 490 days, one year, 125 days, 
And that just does not make any sense with the interpretation of the passage. So most commentators agree that he's not speaking about 70 literal weeks. The, the Hebrew literally reads, 77s are decreed for your people. And so somebody, some, some commentators take those weeks to be years, 70 sets of years. There are all kinds of math calculations about trying to figure out how long this time period is. And if you are a prophecy buff, if you love diving into this stuff, you can email me. I'll point you to some commentaries and some places, and I'll turn you loose. Uh, but for the majority of us, uh, this, it may not be uh, helpful to spend a, an hour here trying to decide exactly what the weeks are. My personal position is that I, I think when, when Daniel talks numbers in, in, in prophetic literature, when you see this, usually numbers are figurative. In places in Scripture that are narrative, like say, for example, in Genesis, in the beginning of Genesis, when it says God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, I, I have to believe that that's what it's saying, saying is seven literal days. Uh, when when um, you get to the book of Numbers and they're counting off, you know, these are the chapters that we usually skip over. They're counting off all the, the, the different numbers of people that are in each particular tribe of Israel and this clan had this many people in this. I, I think that those are literal numbers. But when you get to a... When you get to apocalyptic literature, portions of Daniel and in Revelation, symbology comes into play. And it gets tricky. It's not easy to interpret. But so when you read about seven-headed beasts and uh, harlots riding on dragons and things, that's all symbolism. It's not, it's not supposed to be literally interpreted. It means it's a symbol referring to something else. And when Daniel is speaking here of 70 weeks, or the 77s, I think he's speaking of a figurative period of time where, um, uh, you see, the number seven is a time of completion. And he's saying 77s. What he's saying is a completed period of time. My determined completed period of time has been decreed for your people. When I say that the, enough's enough, when I say that it's time, then it will be complete because I have decreed it to be complete. That's what I think he's getting at with these 70 weeks. But what we can be clear on is the purpose of the 70 weeks. If we can't agree, on, even if we can't agree on the length of time, he's very clear here about the, the purpose of these 70 weeks. And he lists off about six things in verse 24. He says, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and then finally to anoint the most holy place. That's the purpose of this decreed period of time. That's what God is up to. These six things he's bringing into fulfillment. And we'll understand that a little bit more in the, in the following verses. So in verse 25, he says... Um, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore Jerusalem, restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Verse 25 says that the, the, the event that will kickstart these 70 weeks is the declaration to go out and rebuild the temple. That happened when King Cyrus 
gave the Jewish people permission to return to their homeland in 445 BC. That's what kicks all of this off. The 70 weeks begin when Cyrus says, all right, you guys can go back. And you can read about that in in Nehemiah and Ezra, about the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. Now, verse 25 is tricky because the Hebrew is not very clear on whether the 62 weeks and the seven weeks whether there should be a division there or whether they're an ongoing thing. I'm not going to get caught up in that. There there are different viewpoints on that, and for the sake of time, we're not going to to discuss that. But he says that that there's going to be an anointed one, that the first 69 weeks culminate with the coming of an anointed one. And then verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, so the 7 and then the 62 makes 69, in a an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So what's going to happen at the end of this period of time is that the anointed one is cut off. I think he is talking about Jesus. From the time 445 BC to the coming of Christ is the length of the first 69 weeks. And he says that anointed one will be cut off. One of the reasons that I think he's talking about Christ is not only the context here and what verse 27 is going to tell us, but in verse 26, um, the, the word that's used for cut off, is a, is a, it's a harsh word. It means to be removed, to be destroyed. It's a, it's a word that, that connotates a violent death. Where else in Scripture do we read about an anointed one meeting a violent death? The prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 8, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be cut off from the land of the living. Same idea is being communicated there. And this anointed one in verse 26 is cut off. I think that he is referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, at the beginning of verse 26. But then he, he shifts gears in the middle of the verse, and it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This seems to be another person introduced into the narrative. We have the anointed one being cut off, and then we have a prince of the people who is to come who are going to be destructive and destroy the sanctuary. Well, if we look at things historically, that's exactly what happened after Jesus was cut off, after he died for our sins. Jesus died somewhere around 33 AD. And within less than 40 years, 70 AD, the Romans came in. Remember, the Romans had been over uh, Israel during the time of Jesus' life. Well, they they, they didn't like how the Jewish people were running things. And they said, enough with this. We're going to come and wipe you out. And so in 70 AD, history tells us, and you can read about it in uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, had eyewitness records of this. But Titus came in and just completely wiped out and destroyed Jerusalem. Slaughtered thousands and thousands of people. Drove them out into the hills and their, and from their homes. It was utter and complete devastation. I think that's what... Daniel is prophesying here. He goes on to say at the end of verse 26, it shall, its end shall come with a flood 
And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. I don't think he's talking about the end, the end of time. The, one of the ways that you can trans, translate the, the, the Hebrew pronoun here, and it's, it's rendered that way in the English Standard Version, it says its end. I think it's speaking of the city and the temple and, and, the, and the Jewish worship. It was all going to come to an end with this terrible desolation that happened under Titus in AD 70. Jesus predicted that. During his days, he was, he was walking out of the temple one day with the disciples in Matthew 24, right at the beginning of the chapter. And he says, you see all this temple, don't you? Look around you. You see all this? Truly, I say to you that there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And his words came true just a couple of decades later. Its end shall come with a flood, and there shall be war. When you get into verse 27, it says, He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, this is, this is one of those, those tricky parts, but I think that what he's doing is jumping back to refer to the anointed one at the beginning of verse 26, that he's the one making a covenant. Because we look at history, and that's just exactly what Jesus did. You remember the night that Jesus spent in the upper room with his disciples before he went to the cross? And they were sharing a meal together, a meal that we remember once a month here. And, and he holds up the wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What he was doing was he was inaugurating a covenant that God had made long before with his people. You can read about it in Ezekiel. I wrote it down here. Um, Ezekiel chapter... Um, Ezekiel chapter 11, or in Jeremiah 31, where, where God promised this new covenant. And, and it had all kinds of wonderful promises and he, like, where he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to make my spirit dwell within you. Well, what Jesus was doing hundreds of years later, that night with the disciples as he raised the glass, was inaugurating that covenant and saying, this covenant is now being fulfilled and as he went to the cross and shed his blood, the new covenant was initiated for his followers. What Daniel 9.27 is telling us, I believe, is exactly what Jesus was going to fulfill. That the new covenant was going to be inaugurated. In fact, the word um, that, uh, that he uses for uh, a covenant there. Um, indicates a, a, not a different covenant, but one that had already been previously made, exactly what we find in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. There are some commentators that see this as, and, if, and again, if you're a prophecy buff, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that interpret verse 27 as fully referring to the Antichrist at the end of time. And the covenant spoken about here in verse 27 refers to a covenant that he makes with at the beginning of the tribulation with, uh, with people, and then partway through, he breaks the covenant. If you've, if you've, again, if you're a prophecy buff, you're on the same page. If you're not, you're like, when is he going to let me go get lunch is going through your head right now. Um, I, I think this is Jesus right here. I think that this covenant is speaking of the covenant that Christ inaugurated the night before. Because look at the next phrase. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. About three and a half years into Jesus' ministry, Jesus did just this very thing. When he went to the cross for you and me, he put an end to sacrifice and offering 
through his death on the cross. No longer do people need human priests as intermediaries to approach God. No sacrifices. Jesus, once for all priestly sacrifice, has given us direct access to God. And then I think the last sentence of the verse switches back to the wickedness that is going to take place after the death and ascension of Jesus. And it says, On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I think he's talking about the destruction that took place during the, uh, the Titus's sack of Rome or of, of Jerusalem. Whether you agree or disagree or really have no vested interest, these verses speak to us in a powerful way because Daniel went to God in prayer and God answered his prayer. And after all of this, after all of this, we see that there's a hopeful answer. It was a mysterious answer. Some of us are probably more confused than when we started out here this morning, but it's a hopeful answer. I want to tell you why, just briefly as we close. Because first of all, it reminds us of the certainty of God's promises. When God says something, it's going to happen. I told my wife, she's not in this service, so I'm going to tell this story because makes me look bad, and I don't want her reminding me, but I, I promised her that I would um, clean the leaves out of the gutters here before the weather got nasty and stuff. And what, what I mean when I say that is I'm going to have the boys do it, but still, I, I'm in charge of at least overseeing the project, and it still hasn't happened yet. I need to do it today or tomorrow here while it's nice. And um, but my point is that sometimes we as humans will say things, and we don't follow through on them. Sometimes our promises are, you know not so good, or it takes us forever to come through, or we forget about them. The thing about God is that, that he always keeps his word. He always fulfills his promises. When he says something, it's going to happen. And, and that's why I think it's so neat. I, I believe that these, these, these prophecies and these verses, have, they came to fulfillment. They're, again, as I said, there are some commentators that are looking for these things still in the future. I think these things were, filled, were fulfilled in Christ and around his time. And it's just so neat to see God's word like, like it's true and it's real and, it, and it's, it's trustworthy. I just want to remind you that this week when, when you're struggling or maybe you've read something in, in the Bible and think, I don't know. I've been at this a long time, and I, I haven't seen that. Remember, God's not at work on our timetable. God's, God's ways of getting things done are not my ways of getting things done. And, you know, this morning, if you're, if you're struggling with being patient and waiting on the Lord, this morning, if you're feeling frantic and hurried and stressed, I think God's word to you may be this morning to, to chill out, to, to trust him, to say, okay, God, I, I've been praying about this a long time. I've been waiting to see this happen for a long time, and it's still not there yet. Don't fear. Don't freak out. God is at work, fulfilling his promises, hearing your prayers and completing his plan on earth. It may not match up with our calendar, our day planner. It may not line up with the alerts that are coming through on my phone. But it's all going to happen in his timing. 
It's one of the great lessons we can learn from biblical prophecy. Secondly, this, this prayer and this answer to this prayer is hopeful because we're reminded of the new covenant. I wish we had more time to talk about the new covenant that Jesus um, instituted and, and brought to fulfillment through his death on the cross. But know this, today, this morning, there's nobody up front here who's gonna be slitting the throats of sheep and goats. And we can just thank the Lord for that. Because the, the work on the cross has been done. There's no more blood that needs to be shed. No more animals are, are taking our place. Jesus completed the work on the cross. And here's why else the new covenant is so amazing. Because the promise made in Ezekiel and Jeremiah was that I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. He said, I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I love the imagery. Before we meet Jesus, we have a heart of stone, the Bible says. And he says, when, when you become a Christian, I'm going to take that heart of stone. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. A tender heart, a new heart. Paul calls it a, a, a new creation. When you come to Jesus, you're a new person. I've watched it with my eyes. I've seen adults come to Jesus who are hard and crusty, and some of them addicted to pornography, some of them just mean and angry, yelling all the time, and no, nobody, nobody wanted to be around them, and all of a sudden, God just melted them. I've watched God set people from, free from addictions, God is in the business of changing people, and that's the new covenant promise. You know, this morning, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're a new creation. You're a new person. There will be temptations to go back to that old way of living. Don't, don't give in to that. You're not that anymore. The new covenant promise is so amazing. And then finally, it's amazing because as part of the whole deal, and this was completely unheard of in the Old Testament. Christians get to be permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God comes to live inside of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would temporarily visit God's people and empower them for certain things. But each and every day, God's Holy Spirit dwells in you to give you the ability to do what's right, to say no when you feel like, like screaming at somebody, to get you to, to turn away when, when that porn temptation comes across your, your computer screen, when, when you're tempted to cheat or be dishonest, you're tempted to be, to be gluttonous, envious. God's Holy Spirit is there to empower you to not only choose what's right, but, but to be able to act on that godly impulse and say no to these sinful impulse. That's, that's all part and parcel of this new covenant that Daniel was referring to in Daniel chapter 9. And then finally, this is, this is a hopeful answer to prayer because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that as was promised here in verse 24, that when Jesus came, he was to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's what happened when Jesus took our place on the cross. No more work, no more labor, no more striving to please God. The work has been completed. 
He has dealt sin its final death blow. We know that we still live in this world of sin, but it's been decisively cut off and no longer has any chance at winning out. And he made it, brought in everlasting righteousness. You know, today if you came in here feeling like you didn't measure up, like maybe this hasn't been a good week, you got talking politics around the Thanksgiving table and it came to blows or whatever, God says that the righteousness that you can have through Jesus Christ is an everlasting righteousness. That means as we struggle, as we sin, as we blow it, that, that righteousness, because it's a gift, it never changes. I want to close with words from Hebrews chapter 2.17. It says, therefore, Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters, us, in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. This truly is, at least for me anyways, a mysterious answer to Daniel's prayer. I don't feel like I have it all figured out. What I do believe that God is saying clearly is that the covenant that Jesus made was a life-changing covenant. And the work that Jesus did upon the cross truly atoned for our sins and brought in everlasting righteousness. Even if this passage has left you befuddled and confused, scratching your head, know this, that the work of Christ is complete and God's word proves true. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we long to know and apply the truths of your word. Some of these passages are difficult to understand. They're hard as we wrestle with them to, to understand the, the exact nuances of what's going on. But Lord, I pray that we would not miss the forest for the trees. That we're, we don't get caught up in dates and definitions of the weeks and what happens at the middle of this week. And, and Let us be able to step back Lord, let us be able to step back and see what's going on here. That you're reminding Daniel and your people that in the midst of a situation where they're weighed down with their sin, that they're feeling hopeless, that there is a God who hears their prayers and has initiated a plan to bring in the Messiah who would take care of the sins of the world. Lord, this morning, if there's somebody here who has never trusted in this Savior, the one who paid for their sin, Lord, grab a hold of their heart and may they long to know Jesus and to trust him for their everlasting righteousness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.